The whole premise of this series has been ruined. Did anybody catch the news about Marie Kondo this past week? Marie Kondo, the queen of tidying up, the one who called all of us to declutter our lives and spelled out for us the profound implications for all of life that tidying up would have. Did you hear what happened? She had her third kid, God bless them, that's awesome. And she declared, I give up, I'm no longer tidying up. My house is a mess, it's cluttered, it's a wreck, it's a disaster. Oh my goodness, I was like, well, there it goes. I, uh, if Marie quit, what's the use for any of us? No, just kidding. We are in the midst of our uncluttered series. And the premise of this is pretty clear, that all of our lives over the course of time collect clutter. It's just the way it is. Our cars collect clutter. My car is 11 years old, and I guarantee you there are French flies on the floor of my car that are, in fact, 11 years old old. My closet keeps collecting clutter. I got acid wash blue jeans, bell bottom, designed by my mama, still in there. They were never in style. They're never going back in style. They're still there in the closet. Our kitchens collect clutter. I got, I got Instapots. I got Crock-Pots. I got air fryers. I got, uh, I got bubbly water makers. I got Ronco dehydrators. I mean, I got room for the stuff in my, anybody else, am I preaching yet? Are our lives collecting clutter? Yes, no, you're like, no, you're like, no, not me. My house is totally in order. No, it's not, I've been in your houses. I've seen the clutter. And of course we know that this comes into our lives as well. Our minds collect clutter. Our minds collect the clutter of maybe the negative things that were said to us in our childhood negative things that were said to us by our schoolmates, negative things that we keep saying about ourselves, playing on this cycle, just repeating over and over again. And, and, and you can fill in the blanks of your own mind's loop of just the negative things that are cluttering your mind. We know that our hearts can get cluttered with negative, hurtful emotions. We know that the body itself collects the clutter of the pain and the brokenness of a fallen world. There's a wonderful book that came out a year, maybe two years ago now, uh, The Body Holds the Trauma. The body tells the story. I, I, would, I would recommend to people. And, and they're just finding profound, profound connections between the clutter that we hold in our very bodies and the implications that this can have for our health and wellness going through life. So we know that even our bodies themselves have collected the clutter of unforgiveness, the clutter of anger, the clutter of rage, the clutter of past mistakes, the clutter of things that have been done to us, the things that we've done with our bodies that we're not proud of. These things collect and clutter our lives, but thanks be to God, there is a way in Christ to become new creations, clutter-free. We just sang about that. I mean, how perfect, how beautiful. It's almost as if Kellen plans the worship sets. Um, he does. Create in me a clean heart and all of the implications of being made new, fresh, and clutter-free in Jesus Christ. That is what we've been into the past several weeks. And today we're going to draw a powerful, powerful connection from one of my favorite passages. And we are gonna see this connection between the body and the brain, the body and the mind, and how coming together and uncluttering the body and the mind, offering ourselves to God, we can actually experience transformation and renewal. But more than that, 
hold on to this as we work our way through the passage. There's a trajectory, there's a target to this. Whenever we are uncluttered, body and mind, heart and soul before God being made new, there's a powerful connection to be able to actually know and do and step into the very will of God for our lives. We know and we hold fast to the promise that God has a sovereign will that will not be thwarted, that cannot fail. Hallelujah, amen. Brothers and sisters, we stand on the sovereign will of God, but there is a way for us to participate and to be a part of the will of God playing out in the world. And that should be the exciting proposition for all people who want to follow Christ, I can actually know and be a part of the will of God and do his work in the world. Hallelujah and amen. How awesome is that? Because I found this passage whenever I was about 20 years old. I found this passage as a young man and it just sparked something in me. I was going through the book of Romans because at some point you're told go through the book of Romans and so you finally start reading through the book of Romans. And when I was go going through the book of Romans as a young man, I remember in the study notes as I was turning the page to chapter 12, it informed me that Paul was also turning the page and making a transition. He was going from his theological argument, outlining the whole plan of redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ, and he was about to transition to the implications that that would mean for the follower of Jesus Christ. And that was a very exciting proposition to me as a young man, that I could offer my body, that I could have my mind transformed, that I could be a part of the will of God. But I gotta tell you now, it's been more than 20 years since I was 20. In fact, it's been 30 years since I was 20. And I find myself, I keep coming back to this passage it, by early on in my life, it was a wonderful trajectory calling me to the way that I wanted to live my life. Now more than halfway through my life, it keeps calling me back. And I'll just say it, and I'll just name it because I'm excited about it. Kind of that youthful idealism, that kind of just being a young dreamer for Jesus. I can do something in the will of God and I can make a powerful difference in the lives of my family, the lives of my neighbors, in the life that we have in this world. And I hope that's an exciting proposition for all of us. Now, what I'm gonna do though to turn the corner here is I'm gonna read the very end of chapter 11 because chapter 11 is going to uh, tee up, uh, drop the puck, uh, tip the ball, whatever sports analogy you wanna use. Um, it's gonna set up for the transition that Paul is about to make here. Um, he gets through this powerful theological argument and he kind of just starts praising God. That's why we call it the doxology. He just, I have to give God a shout out of praise. And, here, and here's what he says. He says, therefore, as God's, wait, no, uh, it, did, it, did it not appear? I don't have it in there. All right, it's not gonna be in there. I'm gonna read it for you. Do we have a snafu there here? This is what he says at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. So we have this wonderful declaration of praise to God. And with that, Paul then makes his transition and we make our transition here 
So he, oh, somebody trying to, oh, I'm sorry. I probably messed it up with my. I'm messing it up. Okay, I'm going to let them fix it back there. Why? Hey, there we go. Thank you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and, no, that's last week's. Uh, sorry, I'm, I probably hit the wrong button on here. Well, I have it memorized anyways, because I say uh, this is one part of my devotions every day to God as I go through this passage here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies holy and pleasing as a living sacrifice to God. This is your some translations will say spiritual, some will say true and proper. This is your spiritual, your true, your proper act of worship. And then he makes a turn. He says, do not be conformed or do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. <laughs> These two verses are undeniably and absolutely brilliant. They are absolutely brilliant. Paul has compressed all of the Old Testament, all of his theological argument through 11 chapters into two verses. First, what he is doing is, is he is reframing the whole of the Christian life and all that we are called to do. He is going to motivate us, not by religious obligation, but out of gratitude for all that God has done to save us and to be with us. Second, he's going to reframe what worshiping God is going to look like for the follower of Jesus Christ. And then he is going to provide for us a holistic vision, a holistic vision of the person completely turned over in discipleship, surrendered to God and what that can mean for living out the rest of our lives. How does he do that? He begins, he urges us as the family of God, calling us out brothers and sisters. You gotta love that, but I, I, this almost became like five sermons by the way, so I'll try to keep going through it. But he, he calls us together as the family of God and he says, therefore in view of God's mercy, what he has done there is he has boiled down all of the Old Testament and all that he has built thus far into one word. And what is the word? It's a word that we use far too little, mercy. When you look at all that God has done, what does Paul say this is? He's like, this is God's mercy for us. The mercy of God is this when he called us into being and he created us to live in communion with him in the garden, the perfect state of shalom and relationship with God and relationship with one another and relationship to the creation and with ourselves, when he called us to being and when we fell then into sin, when we turned our back on God, when we ran and hid from him and, and covered ourselves from one another, God looked at us and what did he have? Mercy. He had mercy from the foundation of the creation to draw us back into relationship with him. When the world was filled with sin and he wanted to cleanse the world from all the pain and the brokenness, from the hurt, from the immorality, from the sins that were plaguing humanity, he cleansed the earth, but he had mercy 
and he called the family of Noah and he began afresh. When people continued to fall into sin, he looked at a man named Abram and he had mercy. And he said, through you, I will build a nation and from that nation will come a blessing to all the world. He looked upon this man named David who was king and David stumbled and fell. He fell far from the glory and, and the goodness of God. But God had mercy. He had mercy on David and he said, through your line, I will bring the savior. And finally, all of these old covenants were brought together in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ that we celebrated again just at Christmas, that in the mercy of God, God came to us and took on our humanity to be with us. And then we know in the ministry of Jesus, we have this great mercy. We have the mercy of his atoning sacrifice, taking on the sins that he didn't commit, the sins of the world, paying the price, going to the grave out of his mercy for us. But not just the atoning sacrifice of the cross, the victory that we have over evil and sin and the devil himself is the mercy of God being acted out for us. The model of sacrifice that Jesus shows to us to embody as the people of God, this is the mercy of God for us. The mercy in the promise that Jesus will come again to set all things to right when heaven and earth collide. I could keep preaching on it, but here's the whole point of that. He says, always keep it in view. Always keep it in view. Wake up in the morning and before you do anything else, put in view the mercy of God. The mercy that he has shown throughout all of creation. The mercy that he has shown on your life. And he has shown you mercy, friends. I know he has. Always just, that's how we start our day. That's how we move throughout the day. Never stray far from the view of God's mercy. When you're sitting there having coffee and looking at your spouse, just like look over her shoulder and she'll be like, what are you thinking about? And just be like, the mercy of God. No, I mean, just like, just write it on a card, put it on your mirror, put something on your desk that will remind you, put a, a screensaver on your phone. I don't know, you figure it out. Just keep putting this mercy of God in your view. So you never forget all that God has done for you because everything else will be built upon this, right? So we get in view this very mercy of God. And once we have this mercy of God in view, then Paul makes the turn. And what he does here is, again, it is, it is absolutely, undeniably brilliant. He says that he wants us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our proper act of worship. But this is the powerful argument that he is making that is missed on us who are far removed from 2,000 years ago when the statement was made. What he has done here is he's created this fancy word here, but you know the meaning, this juxtaposition, this counterposition. He's saying, offer your bodies, not animals anymore. Make it a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, because by definition, sacrifices get dead pretty quick. <laughs> and you're not gonna do this anymore as temple worship, but you're gonna do this as your spiritual worship, your reasonable worship, your proper worship. And that's powerful, what Paul has done there. Because again, he is turning the corner, he's turning the page and revealing for us what the old was foreshadowing, but what is being fulfilled and has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and how now we are to live our lives. So this is the first thing we wanna do is we're not gonna come with animals anymore. We're gonna come with ourselves. We're gonna come with our very bodies. 
No more mediators, no more in-betweens, no more substitutes. You're going to now offer yourself. But what was set up in that Old Testament? They didn't bring the, the old, uh, the, the has-beens, the cast-offs, uh, the not good to anymore. What kind of sacrifices were they to bring before God in the Old Covenant? You know this, you probably heard sermons on this, and you brought the perfect, the spotless, the best. You brought the first fruits. You brought the first crops. You brought what was best to God. So God's inviting us to do the same. In one sense, we would certainly say, well, God sees you as the best because he sees you as his image bearer. He knows you as his child. He has called you. But more so, he says, I want you to offer the best. I want you to offer yourself because you're, you're the best. Again, don't, don't lose that. But, and here's where the uncluttered series really starts to kick in with this passage. I want you to bring your body holy and pleasing to me, which causes us to go back to the last three weeks that we've been going through the uncluttered series and invites us to go through again that promise of saying, is there anything that is currently cluttering my life that is not holy and pleasing to God? And if there is anything in my life that is not holy and pleasing to God, I should probably declutter that in the offering of my body to God, the offering of my very self to him. So you unclutter the sin from your life. You take time to go through confession like we talked about in week one, or you take time to take off the old dirty garments as Jesus talked, as uh, Paul talked about last week, so that we can put on the new garments, not over the old, but fresh and clean and made new. And so again, we just invite ourselves to this process of saying, if there's anything that's not pleasing about my body, I just want to put that in the past and move forward in faith to God. And of course, we can preach now on the old go-tos, uh, the sexual immorality, the lust that, that is talked about in last week's passage. But he's inviting us to go deeper, cast off the greed, cast off the anger, cast off the malice. But when we think about how we are conducting uh, our bodies and our lives, we might even consider to say, how have I been treating this body that I'm offering to God? Uh, have I been running this body ragged? Am I exhausted? Am I burnt out? Am I spent? That's actually not honoring, pleasing to God. And so maybe one of the ways, and again, I'm just trying to push this a little bit so I don't just fall into old patterns of thinking. Maybe one of the ways that you honor and please God in the offering of your body is, well, you get a good night's rest so you have a well-rested and refreshed body to offer to God for his mission for the next day, right? Maybe, let's be honest, maybe you're filling your body with junk food, you know, chips and sodas and candy bars and garbage all day long. Maybe you say, actually, I know better. This isn't a good way to honor God with my body. He gave me a body, I should take care of it, I should probably eat well. Maybe you've you, just been too sedentary. You just need to get up and move, go for a walk, uh, pick up a hobby or a sport that's going to get you moving. Go deep in thinking about what is what can be holy and pleasing about my body that I might offer it to God. And God might say, now there is a body that I can do something good with. There is a body that I can send out to serve people in need. There is a body that can speak of the gospel truth. There is a body that can make an impact and a difference in the lives of the people around him, around her. And so we go through this process of offering our bodies cluttered by sin, and we get them holy and pleasing to God. Now, the other part of that is he says, 
offer your body as a living sacrifice. And one preacher once put it this way, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> and you gotta love that, the idea of a living sacrifice, it kinda, now we don't have an altar, Jesus is the once and final and forever sacrifice, but we like the image, it, it, it plays out well. The, we, we do seem to keep dragging ourselves off of the altar of offering them up to God. So whenever we find ourselves uh, lusting after the things of this world, we put ourselves back on the altar. Whenever we find ourselves uh, lusting after power and prestige, we come back to humility and sacrifice. When we find ourselves lusting after those things that draw us away from the goodness and glory of God, we drag them back, so to speak, to the altar. If we're lusting after comfort, our own comfort, over more than the service and compassion and care for others. We, we get ourselves back to that altar. We put our bodies before God again. So again, we have these bodies and they're not gonna become a dead sacrifice. They're gonna become a surrendered sacrifice and raised to a new life. And we keep bringing ourselves back to Jesus Christ. And then the powerful thing here is he says, and this is your, and the Bible translators don't always know what to put here. That's why some of your translations will say, this is your spiritual act of worship. Others will say, this is your proper act of worship. Others will say, this is your true and right act of worship. Well, yes, to all of that. What, what, what Paul is doing here is saying, what is spiritual is proper. It is right, it is true, and it just makes sense that this is how worship happens. Because in Jesus Christ's sacrifice, and there's many illustrations we could pull from from the scriptures to make this uh, uh, relevant. But one of the things that we know happened in that moment of the cross when he died is that the temple curtain was torn. You see, again, and part of the old system was that true and proper and spiritual worship always had to happen on the other side of the Holy of Holies this inner sanctuary where only the few, the chosen, the selected could, could go. But whenever that temple curtain was torn, God is saying, guess what? Now all of you have access to the Holy of Holies. Now all of you have access to me in the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of you can now be engaging in this kind of worship every moment of every day of all of your lives. Doesn't it just make more sense? Yes, it does does. You don't even have to answer that for me with a hallelujah and amen, because I know it's the truth that this is so much better, that what we have in Jesus Christ is so much more. We don't offer animals that get dead in a temple system of worship anymore. Now we get to offer ourselves, and we get to live for Christ, and we get to do this moment by moment, breath by breath in our walk with Jesus Christ. Amen, friends, amen. Are you with me? Are you with me? We're only at the turn, we're only at the halfway point. You gotta stick with me to get the whole punch, to get the whole picture, to see how this goes through. Because this is the part now, I got me all excited as a young 20 year old. I was like, yeah, 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 brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says, don't be conformed or don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And as a young 20-year-old, that's the part where I was like, yes, I don't want to be a conformist, which is awesome. We shouldn't want to be a conformist. Now I hope to be an old idealist, a 50-year-old idealist. I don't want to be a conformist to this world because I know conformity to the world ultimately leads in death. 
I know that conformity to the things of the world, to state it in its most uh, extreme measure here, is of course that conformity to the world is ultimately conformity to a world that is still in the throes of the fall and the sin that separates us from God. And we should not want to be conformed to that. And so be a nonconformist for Jesus Christ. Be a nonconformist. Don't be conformed to the things of the world anymore because the world will try to shape you and make you and mold you and stiffen you into its casket. Whenever I was, uh, and, and, and we need to stay pliable, we need to stay limber like that. I was thinking about that working out illustration I gave, I gave the other week. And the truth is, again, when I was 20 years old and I'd go to the gym and work out, you know, I'd work out all like the show off muscles. I'd like do my bench press and I'd do like my bicep curls and I'd, and I'd do my crunches to try to get the abs going. They're like all the show off muscles, you know, right? Now I'm, now I'm 50 years old and I look like a fool in the gym because now I'm doing like burpees and I'm doing like this thing called the bear crawl and I'm doing this one called the crab walk and now I'm doing one that I saw a video on. It's called like the lizard where you like crawl like a lizard on the floor. And I realize I am completely cognizant of the fact that I look like a fool. But you know what? I'm still limber. I'm still flexible. I can still ride my bike. I can still go skiing. I can still go rock climbing with my kids because I'm not getting conformed, I'm not getting stiffened, I'm not getting inflexible. I'm keeping limber, I'm keeping pliable in this body. But again, this is the transfer here. All of this is to not be conformed to the death that has a grip on us. And so now it falls on us as followers of Jesus Christ to examine deeply. And this is what I wanna zero in, in here for just a few minutes with you. If we are being honest with ourselves in this offering of our bodies and we you know, want to be holy and pleasing to God, where are we being conformed? Where are we being conformed to the patterns of this world? Chances are over the course of time, we get conformed to the consumerism of this world. I joked about our cars and our closets and our kitchens getting cluttered. But the fact of the matter is, is you probably have more stuff in your life now than you've ever had stuff in your life because we keep getting conformed to the clutter and the consumerism that is just pounding at us every day. If you just buy this product, if you just get this car, if you just get that garment of clothing, if you just get that new bike, no, the bike doesn't count, bikes are awesome, I always need a new bike. No, but if you just keep getting more stuff, you're gonna be happy. You're gonna be fulfilled, you're gonna be satisfied. Now again, I'm not anti-stuff. I never wanna come across as anti-stuff, but have you fallen into the pattern of this world? Have you bought into the lie that says, the more I consume, the more meaning my life will have? Chances are, chances are yes. Have you been conformed to the greed of the world? Because to not be conformed to the world means that we actually, as followers of Christ, choose downward mobility. And you don't hear that too often, do you? We know that we follow the most downwardly mobile person in Jesus Christ who ever existed. Because Jesus from on high in heaven, with all the riches and the glory of heaven, in communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit, chose downward mobility to take on flesh, to take on our humanity. He humbled himself and he associated with 
the sinners, with the sick, with the tax collectors, with the outcasts, with the outsiders. Jesus was always choosing, instead of the greed of the glories of heaven, the downward mobility of associating and being friends with the least of these. And so I ask you, have you embraced the life of downward mobility in Jesus Christ? Have we been consumed to the fears of this world? Because more than anything else, what does, Jesus, what does the scriptures call us to do? Do not be afraid. It's afraid, by the way, I feel like you're like, you know, it's afraid. We are called to not be afraid. And yet you know this, you've heard this, you're not unaware of this. How does nearly every marketing ploy, every politician you listen to, how do they try to motivate you? How do they try to get your donation? How do they try to get you to sign up? They're playing to our fears. They're playing to our fears all the time. Oh, you gotta be worried about this outside. You gotta worry about this economic turn. You gotta worry about this influence. Oh, you gotta be worried about that school curriculum. You gotta be worried about that group. Oh, lots of fear out there, friends. No, we don't buy into that. We don't, I'm gonna try and play you up now. You're too smart for that. Don't fall for their fears. Choose faith. Choose faith over those fears. Choose trust in the sovereignty of God. Choose trust in the will of God. Choose trust in having faith that God will bring all things to fruition. Don't be captive to those fears of this world. Can I talk about one more and get really personal? And get really, you're all gonna hate me after this one. Oh, you're all gonna be like, I'm out of connections. I'll never come back again. He just got too personal. You've been conformed to the platform of your chosen political party, whichever one it might be. Because I think I can guarantee you this. If you take whatever party you follow and you look at the platform of Jesus Christ, they are not going to line up. If you have just fallen in line with the platform of your chosen party, you are not thinking Christ-like about it anymore. The fact is you're putting your politics in front of the person of Jesus Christ. And we are called to always put the person of Jesus Christ before any and all politics because politics isn't gonna save the world. Politics didn't sacrifice its life for the world. Politics isn't coming back to redeem all the world. The person of Jesus Christ is coming back. So you always put the person of Jesus Christ in front of your party's platform because that's when we don't have to be captive to the fears and the conformities of the world, and we can call out both parties. I've said this before, I'm gonna say it again, because the true followers of Christ have been marked by, amongst many things, one, we've been marked by a absolute commitment to life. Oh yeah, we're really conservative, right, right, right? Well, we're also absolutely committed to the welfare of the poor. Oh, that sounds pretty progressive. Well, we're also committed to radical sexual morality. Well, that sounds really conservative. Well, we're also radically committed to welcoming and loving the outsider, the immigrant, the refugee. Well, that, that, that sounds pretty progressive. You know what else we do as followers of Jesus Christ? We love our enemies and we pray for them and we turn the other cheek. No party gets that on their plan. Like no, no party is on board with that because you know what? Before anything else, we're on the party, the person, the platform of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm not saying don't get involved, don't have your positions, don't cast your vote, any of those things. I'm just saying check yourself. Check yourself. Check and make sure that you have not simply been conformed to things like the consumerism of the world, the greed of the world, the fears of the world, and the political platforms of this world. Always put Jesus Christ first. Can I get an amen maybe on that? Are we on board? That's a tough one, but you know, that's why they pay me the big bucks. So I gotta, you know, I gotta do the tough things some, sometimes. Okay, so we're now offering our bodies. And he says, now do not, and now it gets into the mind, says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. And then here's that hook then, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you know, that prayer actually transforms our minds. I gotta cut this part short here and uh, preach a whole nother sermon on it. But this guy, Andrew uh, Newberg, years ago, he started doing these studies and it basically comes down to this. He was studying religious people of all sort of stripes and colors and creeds and stuff. But what he found was that people who are regularly engaging in prayer and scripture reading and worship and meditation on the word of God, these things, their brains were actually wired differently than other people. Their amygdala, that sort of lizard brain, that response brain, that fearful brain, it literally actually shrunk. And the frontal cortex, where we make our more rational decisions, our better decisions, where we live out of the life we wanna live, it actually grew. I, again, I'm not a neuroscientist, I don't know how it all works, but he's been studying now for nearly two decades how prayerful meditation and mindfulness actually begins to rewire the brain. This just affirms what Christians have been affirming now for more than 2,000 years, right? No, no, no. God is in the business of transforming our minds and the ways that we think because our minds actually need some transformation. We have to come to a place where we admit, God, you need to actually change and fix and heal and redeem is the word we like, and it is the right word. God, we need you to actually redeem some of the ways that my mind is gonna work so that I can be a part of the very mind of Christ. And I'll just jump to the end because the payoff is this, and there's much more that could be said about it, of course, but the payoff is this. As we offer our bodies and we're not conformed to the world, as our minds are transformed and our minds are renewed, we know that the coming together of these things is that here is that sweet spot where we can actually know, test, approve the very will of God. And you gotta love how he says, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And that's, again, what we should all want as followers of Jesus Christ, to know and be in the will of God. There's been times in your life when you didn't know the will of God, but maybe you were doing the will of God. Praise be to God, right? There are times in your life, if you're honest, you know the will of God. You know the will of God to be a person of worship. You know the will of God to love your neighbor as yourself. You know the will of God to be generous instead of greedy. You know the will of God to be forgiving instead of seeking your own vengeance. You know the will of God, but it was hard to live in and do the will of God. But that's the place we have to come to with our bodies and our minds, knowing and doing the very will of God. Because the will of God, it's always good. Say it's good. Okay, come, go, this is the end here, people. So this is your chance to get excited. The will of God, it's good, yes. it's pleasing, and it's perfect. All right, maybe you'll believe it later, but uh, 
It's good, it's pleasing, it's perfect to be in the will of God. I invite the band to come forward and they're going to give us some music as we are about to engage in an act of worship. That keeping all of this in mind so perfectly plays out this invitation. Because the invitation for us comes through Jesus Christ who offered his body to be sacrificed for our sins. And on the night that he would be betrayed, he had to surrender his will to the Father. He had to make sure his mind was in sync with the plan of God. Remember, he goes to the garden and he prays, and he prays, not my will, but your will be done. And it is in this moment when Jesus is surrendering his will to the plan of God to win salvation for all of us. It is in this moment when he's willing to sacrifice his body that all is set up for us to live into this new way of knowing, loving, and living for God. The offering of our bodies, the transformation of our minds, us stepping into the very will of God, and it comes together so powerfully in this act of worship that we call communion we call it the Eucharist, where we give thanks for the sacrifice of God. We call it the table of our Lord because this is the table prepared for us by our Lord and the table for which he invites us to come and meet him. It is at this table where we can be transformed body and mind, knowing and doing the will of God. For we know that on the night that he would be betrayed after giving thanks to God, Jesus Christ took the bread and he lifted it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. For this is my body broken for you and for the sins of the world. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and after lifting it up, he said, this cup is now the new covenant that is sealed in my blood, which is shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And Paul then added, giving us the powerful reminder that every time we take this bread and we drink from this cup, we are in fact proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again.